Hey, it's John from CityCast. If you're in the mood to pamper yourself a little bit this week while supporting cruelty-free products, you should check out Bone Cur Home and Wellness. It's the best place in Portland to find everything from chic home decor to cannabis accessories. They've got a curated collection of vegan and cruelty-free home goods and wellness products because their name is French for kind heart, after all. You'll get a 20% discount on your first order when you sign up for emails this week at boncoeur.net. That's B-O-N-C-O-E-U-R.net. And use the code BONECURCITYCAST20. Today on CityCast Portland, we're talking about Portland's new push to ban drugs again, the city's inability to keep its trees alive, and a big switcheroo for one local school. Joining me on this week's News Roundup are Willamette Week reporter Sophie Peel and CityCast's director of newsletters, Brian Vance. It's Friday, September 8th. I'm John Notariani, in for Claudia Meza, and this is what Portland's talking about. Brian, Sophie, welcome back to the Roundup here on CityCast. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having me. So we always start with a bit of an icebreaker question just to get everybody loosened up and thinking about the big things that matter. And I've been thinking a lot about all the labor activity that we've seen both across the country and here in Portland. Obviously, the Actors Union has been on strike. There was a Powell's uh, workers strike on Labor Day. There's some rumblings that even teachers might strike in Portland. So I want to know from you guys, if you could think of like one class of worker in Portland that would be most disruptive to what you need in your life if they were to go on strike. And I will get started. And I'm going to say, I I know that they're probably not unionized, but like now that the season is changing, if the ramen workers of Portland were to go on strike, (laughs) that would just kill me. I've actually never had ramen. Oh, come on, what? Brian. How is that? <laughs> I know. I live in a city that's full of it. That's so strange. What do you eat? Everything else, apparently. <laughs> Not ramen. So. All right, Brian, we're going out. We've got a date this fall. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. As long as they don't go on strike. Uh, yeah. That would suck. I'm trying to think of what I do on a daily basis, and it's not a whole lot. I mean, I go to the grocery store a lot. <laughs> I'd be pretty bummed if grocers struck because... I love the grocery store. It's like my little it's like my little slice of peace. I get to roam around the grocery store and see what everyone else is buying. I'm very snoopy when I go to the grocery <laughs> store too. I'm always like peering into other people's carts and <laughs> So Sophie, this is not the first time that you brought up the grocery I store know. on the road. I know. <laughs> she really loves it. I was trying so hard to not do grocery store and it just kept coming up in my brain. Do you have a specific store or chain that you are a devotee of, Sophie? Yeah, it's not a great one. It's the Freddy's on Burnside, which is like, there's just a lot of life going on in and around that Freddy's. I was there, I was there around closing time, probably a couple of weeks ago. And it was so interesting because it's like definitely become one of those public places where, you know, homeless people hang out, which like, Mm -hmm, uh, you know, of course it's, there's AC or heat or whatever. There's, you know, whatever, but, um, their whole sort of closing routine is like very catered to the homeless population. And it's like, you know, they do have to get everyone out. And so they have like security guards sort of roaming around, like in the kind of smaller aisles where people might hang out. 
but they're also like really nice on the intercom. They're like, you know, we close at 10 p.m., blah, blah, blah. I think they even like mentioned what resources were nearby. Like Freddy's, I was sort of impressed with like, that's cool. Freddy's is kind of being nice about this, nicer yeah. than I thought they would be. Interesting. Um, okay, I came up with mine. Yes. It's hardware store workers. Mm-hmm. because I actually wind up in hardware stores a lot and I'm always buying something because I forgot to get it the last time I was in there and I need it for whatever <laughs> random ass project I'm working on. Um, yeah, if they closed, I'd be screwed because uh, ordering, I don't know if you've ever tried to order something online hardware related. It sucks because you don't actually know if it's what you wanted. Or or you need to buy a box of like 500 screws of all different types. Yeah, I had to do that. I'm making I'm making an end table and I needed like eight screws and I had to buy like a one pound box of screws. So now I have, if you ever need like one and a quarter inch screws, John, uh, I've got them, a ton of them. I mean, this sounds like a real opportunity. If the hardware store is closed, you can open your own, Brian. Oh, it's like the mask <laughs> thing all over again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or the, the sriracha thing. I can start selling this on my Craigslist for like 50 bucks. Uh, awesome. Well, thank you, guys. Well, let's get started. Sophie, you are our guest. What story do you have your eye on this week? So this week, um, it was on Wednesday afternoon, I believe, that the Portland City Council uh, unanimously approved to amend city code um, to ban public consumption of drugs if allowed by state law. So currently... State law prohibits cities from banning public consumption of drugs. But basically what the city council did is they put, you know, sort of a a trigger clause in city code saying as soon as state law is changed and we are allowed to do this thing, we're going to do this thing. So, you know, it's definitely an important distinction to note that this does not publicly ban, uh, con- you know, public consumption of, of drugs at the moment. It's basically saying, if this other thing happens, we're going to do this thing. Um, but I think it was sort of a rare moment of um, unification of the city council. I can't remember the last time, uh, y- you know, we had a 5-0 vote on, on something sort of this magnitude. I think, I will say, I think what makes it easier for city council people to agree to it is that there's no immediate effect, which I think is, it's not a cop-out, but I do think it makes it less politically sticky than if state law did allow this and the city was banning this outright and it was going to take effect tomorrow. So I would be curious to know, had it, you know, had it taken effect tomorrow or a month from now, if it still would have been a 5-0 vote. Another thing that's interesting too is Mayor Ted Wheeler a couple months ago, probably now, had floated this idea Um, of doing this very same thing. And uh, he, you know, clawed it back within a week of first proposing it because he thought there would be a legal challenge to it, which there probably would have been. Um, And this time around, it was Commissioner Renee Gonzalez, who who was sort of the trailblazer on on this one. So, you Mm -hmm. know, the mayor had proposed it two months ago, he dropped it. And then two months later, Renee sort of, you know, Commissioner Gonzalez picked up the baton and, and carried it to council. You know, when I saw all this coming down, I was surprised that city doesn't have the ability to do this on their own, that the state sort of has the trump card in this effect. In the article that I was reading about it from OPB, it was Alex Zielinski's article, it, it says that there was a law that was passed back in 1971 um, that basically said that the state has the ability to make these rule changes, but not at a city level. Well, didn't they do it too? Because like at the time they were reclassifying addiction as like a health issue, not a criminal issue, which I thought was interesting that like there was an effort to do that decades ago. But, but here we are again, 
having this battle. I, okay, like Wednesday's news really bummed me out. And, and I'm not I'm not pro people using fentanyl. Like, I want to clarify that. I have a lot mm-hmm. of friends who are heroin addicts whose lives have been ruined because of opioids. But I also grew up in a state where that was never legal and it didn't stop them from getting into that. It was never legal to shoot up fentanyl or smoke heroin on the street. They still did it. They mm-hmm. still became addicts. They still, you know, ruined their lives. Pushing people into darkness doesn't solve the problem. Yeah, yeah. And I think that, you know, it's important to underline that the reason that we had Measure 110 in the first place was because of the problem of over-incarceration, because mm-hmm. of the war on drugs, because the way that drug laws have been structured in America has just forced so many people into jail in ways that are totally unethical. Um And I think we as a community are like forgetting about that pretty quickly. And it's important to underline. It's like just putting people in jail is not going to solve things. Doesn't solve it. And actually drug use, fentanyl use is actually pretty rampant in in jails and prisons around the country right now. So it's like that's really not going to fix it. Yeah. At all. You know, there's always the the question, especially in Portland, of enforcement. Mm -hmm. You know, we Mm -hmm. do these things and we don't enforce them. And I think that's a very real possibility with this as well. I mean, we're going to see how that works with the camping ban. Right now, they're doing their, quote unquote, summer of education. Um, It just keeps getting pushed back. (laughs) But when they do, you know, start, you know, quote unquote, enforcing, I'm very curious to see what that enforcement looks like and if there's any enforcement. So I think I could see the same with with public consumption, you know, and... I mean, they, they sort of go hand in hand a little bit. Mm-hmm. The other thing I realized when I was thinking about this the other night was like, this very much feels like a game of political chess. So now mm-hmm. city council, particularly Ted Wheeler, can say, look, I'm trying to do something about it. And Tina Kotek and the state government are stopping me. And so it, it felt like something that could maybe kind of pass the buck of the issues happening here, mm-hmm. you know, up the chain to to the legislature, to the governor and say like, they're the ones who are who are preventing us from being able to tackle this this crisis. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, and I think it's interesting that this is happening a week after we saw the news that there is a coalition that is organizing to try and push for the reversal of Measure One Ten, or at least a significant rewrite to it. Like, I I bet you know in the next session of the legislature, this is gonna be an issue, and they're gonna have to address it in one way or another, right? Yeah, it definitely doesn't seem like it's going away. Mm -hmm. I mean, is it safe for us to start thinking about that Measure 110 just hasn't worked the way it was intended, though? Or do you think that it's just we are giving up too early and we haven't gotten to the point to really fully implement it in a way where we could see some positive changes from it? I think it's absolutely both. I don't think it's been implemented as as it was promised or with the pace with which it was promised. Um, And then I also think that change takes time. But I think... Just because we're not seeing change doesn't mean that, like, it's working, you know, or that things are happening behind the scenes. Like, I don't think anything's really happening. I mean, what, we just, we just, you know, like, allocated some of this money how many years after we passed this ballot measure? So I, I absolutely think it's both. And I think had it, but I do think had we distributed the money much quicker and we actually had the infrastructure in place when we passed that ballot measure, like, we probably, I mean... I think it's likely we'd, we would see some trickle-down effects at this point. But right now, we're, we're just starting. So I don't know. I think it's a couple of years out if we're even going to see any changes, which is just... So yeah, I think it's both. I think like with everything we're seeing, it's it's never black and white. It's never as simple as like, it's all good. It's all bad. It's all one person's fault. It's all, The whole thing's a mess. And, it's, and to be fair, it's not the current politicians 
making. Like this is mm-hmm. decades of U.S. policy, decades of state policy, decades of of Portland policy that have got us to this situation. And it's going to take decades of work to get us out of this. And we're just not going to see any quick fixes, unfortunately. Yeah, well, let's take a quick break. And then when we come back, let's talk about a few more headlines of the week. All right, Brian, let's shift gears. What did you have your eyes on this week? So mine is actually a story from late last week uh, in the Portland Mercury by Taylor Griggs about uh, the ongoing issues with trees in Portland. Um, So, you know, a lot of ink has been spilled in the past few years about about trees in Portland. We actually have one of the leading um, experts on uh, heat island effects and Mm -hmm. in the country here in Portland. He works at Portland State University. and, And, you know, we had that huge heat dome a few years ago that that led to dozens of deaths, specifically in in eastern Portland and East Multnomah County. And one of the things we've learned is that like tree canopy makes a huge difference. So at that time, you know, temperatures hit almost 125 degrees out here. And I'm in East Portland. I should have clarified that. There's just not nearly as many trees. But over on the west side, where it's literally a forest, uh, temperatures didn't even break 100. So it's like it makes a huge difference. Taylor dug into sort of the political infighting that's happening in uh, Portland city government that kind of explains the issues we're seeing. So it was just another example of like how dysfunctional our city government is. And I can't help but think, I, I, again, I'm not, there's no such thing as a magic bullet. I don't think charter reform is going to fix all of our problems. But I do think having one boss of the various city uh, mm-hmm. bureaus who want to solve the tree problem in Portland could help because right now they all answer to different people. And they all have different ideas. And in some cases, they don't even know how to water a tree. And so it leads to a bunch of trees dying. And and we wind up with a situation where uh, we know what works, but we don't know how to actually make the change that would be necessary to to lower surface temperatures in Portland. So That was the image that kind of jumped out at me in this story. And I, I, I hope it's not too broad brush of a metaphor for city government, but that we spend all this money planting trees and placing them around the city, and then we are unable to go about watering them, and they die. <laughs> right. <laughs> we get all these things started, and then we don't follow through on it, and it like literally shrivels up and like dies. <laughs> well, and it's because it's like with anything, it's like you know that first initial effort is the thing that gets the headlines. It's the thing that gets the photo ops. It's the thing that people pay attention to. But the actual work is is the maintenance, is the the growing. Yeah. Of the tree, the the watering the tree for years, trees. The metaphor you know, keeps on going. It's just, and so it's like no one no one thinks about that when they make these big efforts to plant thirty trees in a parking median, you know, in East Portland. I think this this is such an example. Yes, it's an example of like bureaucratic messiness. To me, it also just feels like this is too pathetic of a problem to blame on bureaucratic tangle. Mm, I think, mm-hmm. especially our current city council. They, they blame everything on, well, you know, this bureau was fighting with this bureau, there's miscommunication, like all these words that, not that there's no validity to it, but also just water the trees. Like watering right. trees not is not complicated, it's not difficult. And especially Peabot, like with the story I had written, you know, a month ago about all the dying trees, there was, there was no bureaucracy issues. The issue was that a contract expired and then Peabot 
didn't do anything about it. They didn't step in and water. It was, it, you know, many of these street trees, they are the responsibility after a certain number of years of the adjacent homeowner. These ones were straight up Peabot. There was no one else. I mean, it was surrounded by three roads, which are all Peabot too. So Peabot had no excuse to say, well, you know, our contract lapsed and someone else should have watered them. No, you should have watered them. And it's not difficult. No, that's fair. So Mm -hmm. I don't know. I just think it's such it's such a cop out when people say everything is about a bureaucratic tangle when really it's just like incompetency. Right. (laughs) Although I am kind of skeptical about the idea of trees as like a climate solution. Like, I know that it does make a difference, but like, if we're trying to like solve the climate crisis by like getting a little shade from a tree that's going to grow to maturity in 30 years, like we are fucked. (laughs) Well, I do want to end on on just a good note about this. I will say, Mm -hmm. so uh, one of the things that's happened since the city ended its Friends of Trees contract is there's actually a few different bureaus that do sort of what Friends of Trees used to do, which like tree giveaways, like you can sign up to get some free trees for your yard. And while the Portland Parks and Rec one isn't the same as what used to happen with Friends of Trees, like, for example, you're not allowed to plant these trees that they give you um, as street trees, which help provide shade on roadways, like you have to plant them uh, away from the street. It did just open. So you can go to the the Portland Parks and Rec website. And as long as you live in the city of Portland, you can get up to two free trees that you can plant in your yard, which, you know, might help your house stay a little bit cooler in the coming years. So, you know, you you can still get free trees. But please remember to water them. And it's going to take a few years of, of you watering them. Yeah. Brian, have you done the Friends of Trees thing? I didn't. <laughs> I didn't get a house until after the city ended that contract. And I always lived in like apartment buildings where I didn't have any way to plant a tree. And, yeah. and my landlord definitely wasn't going to plant one out front. Yeah. Uh, but I, I am doing the, the Portland Parks and Rec one. Um, I'm going to get two trees and plant them in my backyard. All right. Well, Brian, thank you for that. Um, I hope your trees grow up and be strong. I'm sure you're a good tree dad, aren't you? I, I would like to think so. Time is the ultimate judgment here. If those trees are dead in three years, I want you to hold me accountable on this show. <laughs> well, the story that I wanted to talk about this week is about schools. So Jefferson High School is going to have a $300 million renovation, and the campus is going to close for three years to make that happen, which, like you know, great to invest in schools. I'm glad that these buildings are getting upgraded. I'm sure that a lot of these buildings really need it. Um, But the problem is that initially, the district is hoping that students could stay on site. But then uh, last month, the schools announced that the students are going to have to take a bus to Marshall High School during this renovation, which is 11 miles away. So... Um, this also is not an unprecedented thing. There's been a lot of like renovations at local schools. Um, and then students have had to go somewhere else for the duration of that time. But the thing that's the kicker here is that right across the street from Jefferson High School is PCC. And that PCC has an agreement, like they already have a relationship with Jefferson High School, but they have not been able to figure out a way to get the students into the building right across the street. Instead, they have to go to this place that is 11 miles away. And I'm going to be pulling really heavily from uh, Michael Anderson from the Sightline Institute for this bit. He had a great sort of tweet thread where he really broke this down. Uh, The school's in an IR zone. The community college is in a CI2 zone. The city's campus institutional zone allows for colleges, but not 
schools. So this is basically what? like the dumbest zoning fight of all time. It's like, nope, you're an IR and you can't like IR in a CI2. I think this is where I get like so frustrated with Portland's lack of flexibility. Like we right. we are such rule followers that it just makes us so like common sense is oftentimes not an option because of uh, like they they just I don't know. I think sometimes I know we're not in like bulldog politics anymore. And that's in many ways, that's a good thing. In other ways, you just need someone to be like, okay, let's cut the shit. And just get it done. Yeah. Yeah, kind of. I mean, it's just, it's so frustrating. Like in, in some ways we are so, we are so like sticky about process that it just makes you want to punch a wall. And this is, Mm -hmm. this makes me want to punch a wall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as we expand our city council, like, look, I think there's a lot of good that's going to come from council by district. I think that there's going to be a lot of good that comes from like having more members. But this is definitely not the sort of thing that's going to be solved by having more cooks. No, no. (laughs) The one thing I I could hope, though, is that like having a city manager, you know, someone who is who is in charge of making the final call on a lot of things, you know, might be able to be like, okay, let's figure this out. But yeah, it's because don't some of the kids already go across the street anyway to take like college credit courses mm-hmm. on PPS's dime, and so it's like that's allowed, but like oh no, but that that that's a that's a campus institutional that is different than a school. It's just so <laughs> so dumb. I mean, like Sophie said, it's just like there, there's some common sense here that's just being completely ignored. Well, what PPS said was they looked into it and they said that it's going to take a change in state law to be able to change this zoning thing. Do we um, really think Oregon State <laughs> Troopers are going to show up and arrest, you know, teachers for teaching? Right. And right, yeah. a PCC bill, like, that's the other thing is like, why do you have to follow the rule? Like, what are the actual consequences here? As Sophie pointed out, Portland's famous for not actually enforcing things. Let's test it out. Are they actually going to enforce this? Are they really going to arrest some English teachers and some arts teachers? for holding classes at PCC. I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, I mean, and also in this, this Twitter thread, someone pointed out, like, most states just exempt government buildings from local zoning anyways. Like, this is sort of a dumb fight of our own making. And there is, like, a much more rational way to do this where it's like, it's a government building. Just, like, let it, like, let it do what it needs to do. It's a school. I'm also confused. What the heck happened to Marshall? That it is just like the campus that every other school that's being worked on goes. Like, does that, is it not an actual school anymore? I haven't been able to find anything out about this. It's like the friend that never has plans. They always get called on for babysitting. You know, it's like, well, you're not doing anything on Friday night, Marshall. Can you take care of all these kids for us for three years? You know, like a thousand of them. I know you don't have any plans. Yeah, it's such a, such a weird thing that we have this like building that's just there and is just ready to take on large numbers of students for years at a time. Cause like, Benson Polytechnic High School, all the students have been actually going to Benson Polytechnic High School at the Marshall campus for a few years now. Well, I I also want to point to an article by Rachel Saslow in your publication, Willamette Week, Sophie, um, who raised a really good point that like, yeah, this is super inconvenient. Like getting kids across town 11 miles every day is going to be a real pain in the ass. But like, it's also a real question about whether this could tank enrollment at the school, you know, Uh, Jefferson already only had about 607 students. The renovated school is going to have capacity for 1,700. But, like, the students who are in that neighborhood have a lot of flexibility on where they can go. They could go to Grant or McDaniel or Roosevelt. So, like, if there are three years 
where you have the choice between go doing this like totally frustrating drive across town or there's like another school nearby that that could potentially like just mean that a bunch of families are going to be like you know what we're we're not in it with Jefferson this might sound like a dumb question but like I know a loss of enrollment is bad, like reshuffling, but but I'm not sure I understand like all the reasons why having one student go from one school to another nearby school is like so harmful. You know, like I, I don't think that like per school resources are allocated student by student, but like as a district, like PBS has limited resources. And if they have a school that has 500 kids and they have another school that has 1500 kids like of course they're going to be sort of shuffling those resources to the places where the most students are so it could sort of lead to this chain reaction where enrollment goes down you know uh resources get reshuffled achievement goes down you know and it can sort of turn into a death spiral for a school and 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 just the idea of again learning communities right like kids need to have other students around they need to have friends they like benefit when there's more of them together and you know once you sort of like suck people out of a community then that those relationships are gone forever. Um, I will say uh you know two caveats one PCC also cited uh capacity concerns is what it said. So I don't want to put like everything on Portland Public Schools. I don't want to put everything on the state. It sounds like uh, the community college was also a little bit skeptical. Um, And Michael Anderson did also say um, that the good news, quote, is that the city is currently in conversations with the school district to see how we might help find an alternative solution. So um, we'll see if anything comes of that. There could still be a fix here or like a less disruptive strategy in place. There's a lot of people who have their attention on this, but one well, shout out to to local news for that. That is the effect of like pressure, you know, yeah. from mm-hmm. from people talking about and witnessing what's happening. It can force um, government agencies, um, public entities to, you know, kind of get their act together and come up with a better solution. And I think we may see that in this case. I think it's the power of podcasts. Yeah. I think that this go. conversation is going to be the this one. This is going to be the one. <laughs> Portland Public Schools is listening, shaking yeah. in their boots right now. That The three of us are on the case. They're scared. Yeah. <laughs> well, as we wrap up, so not everything is doom and gloom. I wanted to try and end on an up note and ask you guys real quick. Um, you know, we're sort of at the change of seasons right now. And I'm wondering what's something that you're kind of sad to be leaving behind this summer. Um, I can go first, and this is the dumbest thing ever, but I got myself a hammock stand this summer. Oh, John, yes. (laughs) It is not the dumbest thing. It's so good. I have a camping hammock, and I love it. Whenever I'm out camping, I take it with me. But the way my yard is set up, I just don't, I don't have a tree. I don't have anywhere to hang it because, because my landlord didn't let me plant a tree. Uh, just kidding. Love you, Michelle. Um, (laughs) But I got a hammock stand this summer, and it felt like kind of a dumb purchase, but like I have been loving it, and I've been loving sitting outside in my hammock. I think I'm going to miss, I've been doing a lot of dinners at Fields Park. Like I just take Mm -hmm. my dinner and go see a friend, or they make dinner, and then we eat it in the park. And why we go there 
is because the dog selection is so good. Nice. Oh, nice. They're just the best, the best dogs. Like you've got, there's always some like designer dogs. Like there's one little anxious greyhound that just like sprints <laughs> around and like one time totally bowled over this guy. And I've got a, a favorite little mutt named Carl who just looks like he just went through like a washing machine and a dryer. I mean, he's just, he's <laughs> oh, not Carl. cute. He's so, you know, he's one of those dogs where it's like, God, you're so ugly. But they're adorable. Yeah. yeah, and he also like hates people. Like he just barks at everyone. And but I've got a real, real soft spot for Carl. So I think I'm gonna miss that. Oh, you're gonna miss Carl. I'm gonna miss Carl. Yeah, rainy season dog parks. Those are nightmares. They are. <laughs> they suck. Like it's just a mud puddle. It's awful. My thing is like probably going to the farmers market and not feeling miserable. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I do try to go to the farmer's market all year round. I'm lucky that my neighborhood has a year round farmer's market. But I'll be honest, it's not fun going to the farmer's market when it's raining and the gravel lot turns to a mud puddle, just like the yeah. dog park. Like, it's just, yeah. it's not as fun. I'm going to miss, like, the bright colors of everything at the at the farmer's market right now. Um, I mean, yeah, let's be real. It's, it's so much better to be, like, you know, microgreens and tomatoes and berries. And apricots and peaches. and As, as opposed to, like, potatoes. <laughs> which I love me some potatoes, but and, yeah. And winter squash. <laughs> it's just not the same. Well, thanks for giving us a couple nice things to think about as we wrap up for the week. Both of you, thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. Thanks, John. Well, that's all for us today here on CityCast Portland. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to share this episode with one of your friends. They should hear it too. Our audio producers this week are Julia Fiaioni and A.K. Al-Mutmed. Our newsletter editor is Rachel Monahan, and our host is Claudia Meza. I'm lead producer, John Natariani. Original music by Jenny Conley and Steven Drisos. Additional music by Epidemic Sound and All the Kimonos. Claudia will be back on Monday morning with a lot more from around the city. Until then, see you at Slim's.